welcome to the Maui Noko Oi Magazine and Silver Shark Media Podcast. I'm Jason Evans of Silver Shark Media. I want to welcome our next guest, Alexa Kasky of Moku Roots. Alexa, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. So last Friday night, Diane and the folks at Maui Noko Oi Magazine did their annual Ipono Awards. They did it online this year for obvious reasons uh, and announced <laughs> all the winners via Facebook Lives. And Moku Roots was named Most Sustainable Restaurant. So let's start with your reaction to receiving that award. We were super excited. I didn't even know that that award had existed, and I don't think it did in previous years. Yeah. <laughs> so it was really, really cool because that's definitely what we go for in every aspect of our business, from purchasing to the kinds of containers that we send customers away with, with to-go food and drinks, and like where we source things from, the packaging that we try to buy things in and yeah really just every aspect of our business well i, I want to talk about the history of your business at mocha root so I, i've been on maui for over 15 years now and i have to say i don't know how many new spots have hit the coconut wireless as fast as yours did when you first opened <laughs> um, so what was the inspiration behind starting mocha roots i've been pretty into being zero waste for a long time and i'm certainly not perfect but I definitely make conscious decisions when I'm buying stuff for myself. And I was just a little discouraged in the whole like environment of going out to eat and single use containers and, you know, going to like salad bars or whatever. And they only have like single use stuff, even though there's so much seating for people to eat right there. And then they only have plastic forks and blah, blah, blah. And um, I just wanted to kind of prove that it was possible to not do that. And that's, I think the zero waste component, it's, it's one thing to have, you know, a vegan vegetarian menu, another thing to go zero waste. It's, it's not easy. So what was your preparation like to achieve that? It's, it's a fairly ambitious goal, I would think, for a restaurant to, to pull off. I think I was in somewhat of an advantageous position in that I don't have a lot of restaurant experience. You know, I didn't have all of these like preconceived notions of things you have to do. Well, you have to give away silverware. You have to give away, you know, stuff in to-go containers that people are going to take home and throw away. Like I wasn't conditioned to believe that because I haven't really worked at a lot of restaurants that did that anyways. So um, I think sometimes like having less knowledge in an industry is kind of helpful if you're going to do something different than that, what that industry is accustomed to. Sure. Erica had more restaurant experience than I do, certainly. And um, so she kind of brought some of that to the table. The stuff that you sort of need to know, we did some research and we have we had like some backing partners that have a lot of restaurant experience. So they were helpful for other information. But yeah, I think honestly, not having that experience and that conditioning to just think that it's necessary to yeah, give away things in cardboard or plastic containers was helpful. Plus that was just the whole foundation of the business really too. that. And I've been vegetarian for a long time, like more or less vegan. I eat honey, but the restaurants that are on the West side are generally catering to tourists. So the people that come like once a year, you know, they have this fabulous meal last year and they want to have the exact same thing again. Right. And there's only like one or two things I can eat on the menu anyways. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so restaurants aside from like hours get quite old to me pretty quickly. Right. And so that was kind of the other aspect of the business. It was like, well, I want to, I want a menu that kind of changes with the season and um, that not only vegans and vegetarians are going to love meat eaters are going to love it too, which I think is really a 
large, large portion of our customer base are meat eaters. You know, at least like one member of the family is a meat eater and they bring them in. They're like, oh my gosh, this is great. We've, I would have never thought that I would have liked vegan food. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, that certainly is relevant to, I think, a lot going on today as well when you have, you know, issues with meat distribution and meat packaging, mm -hmm. um, you know, primarily on the mainland. So for those people who have grown up and maybe never have been exposed to meat alternatives, what do you tell them to, you know, encourage them to maybe even expand their food options to, to things that are on your menu? I would just say, give it a try, you know, like you're going to like it. We don't skimp on the flavor. A lot of the things we flavor exactly like meat would be flavored. Not that they're like totally convincing. We don't use like beyond meat products where they've spent billions of dollars, like coming up with a chemical way to convince you that everything about it is meat, you know, so that's not really what we're going for, but the flavors are there and it's filling and it's just not what the people who haven't really been exposed to vegan food think of vegan food. Right. You know, I think they're going to leave feeling unfulfilled and still hungry and whatever. And that's just not going to be your experience here. I want to go back again to the zero waste. I've covered environmental topics in tons of different video and television productions. Plastic's the one thing that has become definitely more mainstream in the past few years in terms of awareness. Mm -hmm. and, and one thing I talk with with researchers and experts is the next step beyond simply getting a hydro flask and, and trying to avoid single use plastics is shifting the way we package items and yeah again restaurants play a big part in this on your supplies that come in and your supplies that go out how are you able to kind of creatively get past things like plastic wrapping and plastic materials on on your food products yeah let's start with the customer end first um i mean it it's really pretty simple at this point we started with taro leaves and we had it plastered all over the menu boards like do not eat these raw and some <laughs> people would take them home and cook them like a, we had a lot of locals who would come in and get taro burgers and uh they would even eat them there and they'd be like yeah can we get taro like i'll just take it wrapped up in a taro leaf and they'd be like yeah well we take them home and cook them and we're like oh, okay well yeah you're totally welcome to do that but we've had it posted everywhere don't eat the taro leaves raw like they look edible and they are but your throat is gonna get so itchy if you try to eat it raw and i don't know maybe like five times people would call like that had come in and gotten food earlier and they were like yeah we ate a little bit of it and now i feel like my throat's on fire or whatever. And we're like, okay, we, gotta, we gotta find another option we started using tea leaves and that's kind of nice too because they don't break as easily you know taro leaves are like a little bit delicate they're fantastic for they're really actually they're pretty great wrappers but we just needed to avoid like that potential lawsuit sure <laughs> so yeah we switched to the tea leaves which we get locally of course and um i'm actually going to a tea leaf farm like in an hour to go pick some nice but, um, yeah, and then we use, like, the pieces of the fallen banana leaves, we just call them banana husks, mm -hmm. uh, to tie it. We use it, like, as a little rope, and that really serves that purpose so perfectly, too. So that's got all of the handheld section of the menu covered, the sandwiches and the wraps and the burritos and, like, the sushi, et cetera. And then for the other stuff, we do just, like, we've got these really cool reusable containers that are on deposit, which I think is super important to, like, encourage people to bring them back, because the last thing you want is for something that isn't intended to be single-use to be single-use. Right. You know, like, if people have a shopping, like, a reusable shopping bag, but they've got 150 of them. Right. You know, they're just sitting in their 
their closet or whatever. And eventually they're going to probably make it to the landfill. And because it was intended to be reusable, there's more material there. So it actually probably did in most cases take more energy to create it. So really with reusables, the whole thing is they need to be reused. Right. You got a hydro flask, great, but like you need to use it. Yeah, yep. <laughs> yeah you don't need like 17 hydro flasks. <laughs> Keep the one. It really should last for a very, very long time. So yeah, we do the mocha roots tins or little metal tins are great on deposit for $10 for everything that doesn't really fit in a tea leaf. So our salads and um, some of our like our butternut squash Alfredo and stuff like that. And yeah, and then we just give people $10 back when they bring them back. So that's really great to keep them in circulation. Lots of people keep them. I see them around, which is really cool. Like I'll see people wrapping up their leftovers from another restaurant in one of them. So nice. that's really awesome. So they do go to yeah. good use. Well, you mentioned you're you're on your way to a farm now. I have to imagine a, a restaurant like yours, you have to have strong relationships with farmers here on, on Maui. Tell me about kind of the importance of those relationships for you guys in terms of utilizing their product in a, in a way that is both healthy and honors what they do. Yeah, it's really wonderful to be able to know where the food is coming from when you buy it. And there's like a store in the middle or a distributor in the middle. You don't have like a relationship with not only the farmer, but also the farm to kind of know what's going on. We've visited, like between Erica and I, we've visited most of the farms that we source anything from and talk to the farmers about what they're not, you know, that they're not spraying stuff. Because really nobody in Maui, with the exception of like one farm that I know is actually certified organic, just unless you're a huge farm, it doesn't make a lot of financial sense to go through that process. Right. So, you know, most places are just organically managed and you just need to like have a relationship with them and kind of trust that that's what's going on. Sure. So yeah, that's great. Um, keeping, you know, the money in this economy is something that's really important in buying local. And I've like, ex- I've written about this a little bit where, you know, if people spend money with us. So say they spend like $10 with us, the kind of breakdown of like where the money goes from a restaurant is usually about 30% to like your labor. So $3 of that's going to, you know, the people that live here and work here and work at our restaurant. Another like probably 30% is going to the cost of your goods sold. So all of your ingredients. So that portion, you know, if we're buying, say like 90% of our stuff from local farms, then like 90% of that $3 is staying on island too, right? which is really great because if they're buying stuff from like a grocery store or, you know, a restaurant that's not really sourcing locally, only like a tiny amount of your money is actually staying on island. You know, one of the things we've, I, I, I love that breakdown, by the way, because that's one of the th- our goals with this podcast as we talk to different business owners is kind of get some business insight. So you have a business partner. What were your biggest challenges opening up Moku Roots? Getting the landlord to give us the space (laughs) and like write us the lease. They're off island. There's a lot of levels of bureaucratic stuff to deal with and dealing with like a big landlord who's not here on island. Sure. So, I mean, it took us, the space that we're in now was vacant for over a year. And they had told us that we had the space, but then they tried to give it to somebody else and whatever, because we didn't own a restaurant already. So they didn't really take us that seriously. So that was definitely the biggest challenge in the beginning. But after, I mean, looking back now on the 
beginning days of us being open I'm like how on earth did we pull that off like we (laughs) did not know what we were doing but we cared and (laughs) we were just trying to do the right thing what were some of your early successes that maybe you tackled a little quicker than you might have expected I think it was the Maui Times like best of Maui came out the voting ended like four days after we opened or something. It was like early May. It was super early. And then we had actually gotten like runner up for best new restaurant, which was so funny because we had like, we literally only been open for like a, for one soft opening in like a couple days. Yeah. And so I'm guessing people voted for us, like knowing that we were going to open, that was really really cool and definitely validated that like the community was behind us whenever you do something different like people are just going to be naysayers and we were hearing a lot of people being like oh well nobody just wants to eat vegan food and I'm like okay well there's other vegan restaurants that are doing great so yeah let's move on to the next point and then they're like well nobody's going to want to pay like ten dollars to take their food out and um so we did hear a lot of that and I was like well this is you know non-negotiable this is what we're doing and I, there are going to be some people who don't want to do it and that's fine. And we're going to present other options and we've got the tea leaves and, you know, if somebody wants to bring in their own container to take their leftovers home, they're totally welcome to do that. But like, this is the foundation of the business. We are not doing single use. Yeah. So that was really cool. I knew that most people were going to be super stoked on it. And I knew that some people were going to be off put and that was definitely the case, but the amount of people that were just like, wow, we've never seen this before. This is amazing. Why doesn't everybody do this was like overwhelming. Well, I I think that goes to, as you said, you were kind of an industry outsider and kind of sticking to your passion on, on what you believed in (laughs) and, and let the community decide if it, if it was a viable product or not. And I, I think clearly they, clearly they have spoken. So um, <laughs> shifting to past couple months here, businesses on Maui, um, obviously having to adapt to unexpected takeout services if you're a restaurant. What has this time been like for you guys? Now it feels like we're operating like a chill cafe rather than like a fast paced restaurant, mm-hmm. which is actually a really refreshing change staffing is really hard on the west side as i'm sure you know or you've probably heard because there's so many restaurants and there's such good money in like the really high volume front street restaurants that being able to retain employees is kind of tough just in general and especially in such a transient industry that restaurants and the service industry is to begin with compounded with how expensive it is to live on the west side (laughs) yeah we always seemed like we were having trouble with staffing like i always felt like we were just kind of one person and short you know this has like been a really awesome change that everybody wants shifts we've got like our a team in there everybody's doing great it's so nice to have like this really cool core group of people who really enjoy working together and are really really good certainly sales are down (laughs) not gonna lie they're definitely down i think given just the portion of the population on the west side that is no longer there like what percentage that the tourism like was comprising to begin with mm-hmm. i think our sales are pretty good like given those numbers they're definitely down it definitely changes like the dynamic of like just general restaurant metrics and like your percentage of your sales that are rent and blah 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 but kind of on the flip side it has been really cool 
that we've been a little nimble. We started doing like the CSA boxes, which was something we'd actually talked about doing for a while, but just didn't like we kept pushing it on the back burner and didn't really think about it. Also, delivery was something we'd been talking about for a long time, doing in-house delivery. You know, one of the girls that works there who lives on the other side kind of took it upon herself to advertise to some of her friends that she would deliver like on the way home. So we just started doing like four days a week delivery and that's really great. Tuesdays and Saturdays, Central Maui and Upcountry, and then Wednesdays to like Kihei and South Maui. Uh, and then Fridays, Westside. For people who might not know, what is a CSA box? It's crop shared agriculture something, I think, is what it stands for. Um, generally, they come directly from a farm. Ours are kind of different in that they're sort of coming from a variety of farms. Yep. So it's just like a produce box. We've got just a really great variety of local fruits and veggies in it from different parts of the island. And as everybody out here knows, like the microclimates are just so different. So what can grow on the west side? can't necessarily grow in Kula and vice versa. So we've got kind of a broader range of what you're going to get in this box than if it was like from a single farm. Awesome. So what are your expectations? And, you know, you don't have a crystal ball. You, you, no one's expected to tell the future, but what are your expectations for the near term for restaurants as tourism slowly begins to open back up here on Maui? I have no idea. I go back and forth on this so much. I kind of think I'm just torn between whether people are just going to be like, I'm so sick of being inside. I'm so sick of being, you know, at my home or whatever, whether that's like here or on the mainland, like let's either go out to eat or let's go to Maui, you know, and that might happen or people might be really reluctant to travel and to go out to eat and sit in a restaurant that has other people in it. So I have no idea. I definitely think that the more like fine dining restaurants on Maui, it's going to take them a while to bounce back Mm -hmm. because they're just, you know, maybe 95% tourist driven. Not a lot of locals are spending you know the kind of money to like go out to a really nice restaurant very often when you live here so i think it might be harder for them um and it's definitely going to be contingent on the tourism bouncing back to what it was and and i think you know we heard we had peter merriman on a few weeks back and he talked about restaurants that already sort of have that takeout infrastructure something that was Mm -hmm. already part of their restaurant are going to bounce back perhaps a little bit quicker because they are still at least bringing in they're still staying a little bit busy even during this time, even if it's just takeout only. Um, so maybe they have, you know, smaller restaurant might have a little bit more of an advantage like you talk about versus the, the full sit-down dining experience that we'll certainly have to adapt, at least in the near term. Exactly. And speaking from like just the kitchen perspective, you know, if you're running a really high volume restaurant, I would assume that they probably have and need like four or five people just on the line at a time to like operate that menu. And the amount of people going there right out of the gate is probably not going to warrant having that much staff in the kitchen, but it might be a difficult kitchen to execute that menu with fewer people. Shifting back to to positivity. um, (laughs) I I gave you the easiest question of this entire uh, podcast interview. What is your favorite thing on your menu? Ooh, my favorite thing on our menu is <laughs> definitely not the most popular thing, but the kale avocado salad with taro fingers and mac And it's almost, I would guess, like 95% grown on Maui. So yeah, that's definitely one of my favorites. Perfect. Well, how can people find the kale avocado salad and the rest of your menu and place orders right now if uh, they want to? Uh, the full menu is online, mocharoots.com. 
and we have some more information about like the CSA or the produce boxes on there too. Yep. There's information about delivery and also some of the bulk goods that we do that are zero waste. So we didn't like touch on this earlier, but we buy olive oil from the mainland in 55 gallon like metal drums. And then we use it in the restaurant and we sell it also in repurposed like bottles and containers that people donate or like some of the things that we do buy in glass, like smaller glass containers, we'll repurpose them to sell olive oil and sell drinks and stuff. So we have a lot of bulk stuff like that, that we sell also. And there's information about those too on awesome. the website and then ordering is best done over the phone we're trying to figure out a way to do it online but we haven't really come up with like the best way for us sure. to do the ordering online awesome well alexa thank you so much for, for taking the time i do think it's incredibly commendable what you're doing i know the zero waste component again with experience i've had and in, in talking to folks you know globally and looking to reduce plastic and and just waste in general that is one of the more challenging things for people to pull off right now so i really admire the ambition to to go full on for it and and to achieve that. So congrats on that. And, and again, congrats on the Ipono Award and, and thanks for taking the time with us. Thank you so much. And if anybody ever has like questions about how they can reduce their plastic consumption, um, especially in a restaurant setting, definitely hit me up, send us an email and I would be happy to share any information that I have. Welcome to the Maui Noko Oi Magazine and Silver Shark Media Podcast. I'm Jason Evans of Silver Shark Media. I want to welcome our next guest, Dan Cessary of Cessary Brothers Photography. Dan, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks so much, Jake. Good to be here. Full disclosure, Dan and I have worked together many times, but I wanted to bring Dan on to give a perspective from the art industry. Dan and his brother John have a gallery in Paia. Uh, they've been doing underwater photography here on Maui for, is it what now, over 15 years around there? Yeah, exactly. About 15, 16 years. So let's start with your passion for scuba diving first. What got you and your brothers into the water as kids? Well, my brothers and I grew up on the coast of Maine, a little town called York, Maine, and we lived right on the water. And we grew up playing in tide pools and just, we played in the ocean basically every day of our lives. We used to watch the Jacques Cousteau show as kids. And we always just at, you know, really young ages, were like, we want to be like that when we grew up. We want to be like Jacques Cousteau. We want to explore the ocean and and, and go scuba diving and live on an island. And we, we said that as we, when we were, you know, six, five, six years old and just kind of, it was always in there as something we wanted to do. You guys have a great story early on. You'd almost make do-it-yourself snorkel kits. Is that right? Back in Maine? Yeah, because we, we didn't quite know how to uh, figure out. How, we didn't have the gear to be scuba divers yet, but we wanted to try our best. So we would actually tape uh, two liter Coke bottles to the to our backs and we taped these bendy straws to it. And we kind of made a makeshift scuba unit. And we, we would have this place called the Deep Hole, that which was when we go back there, it's only like three feet deep. But we <laughs> thought it was deep at the time. <laughs> As but, a kid, that's deep. Exactly. It felt deep. And we would try and we would get, you know, maybe a, a breath off it. It didn't work that well, but it was something we tried a lot. We kept trying to make it better and better, but it was pretty fun to do. Well, fast forward to when you were able to get actual snorkel gear, what brought you and your brothers to Maui? So it was after college. We all kind of played sports in college. And then, you know, it was time to think about, hey, are we going to get real jobs or whatnot? My oldest brother actually came out to Maui first working on cruise ships and he was the dive instructor and actually Norwegian cruise ships. And uh, he came to Maui and loved it. And then kind of as soon as he came, I remember he called us from a payphone in Lahaina and said, hey guys, this is the spot. So basically, you know, two months later, my other brother and I came out and we fell in love and we became scuba instructors at that shop at a shop in Lahaina as soon as we got here. And what year was that? That was in, well, we moved out in 2003. 
and I, I had to go back and finish one more year of school, but John and Mike, the, my older brothers, both stayed from 2003 on, and I came back right after my senior year. So as, as dive instructors, especially in a, a scuba-centric place like Lahaina, obviously you're getting out on the water quite a bit. At what point did photography start to enter your mindset? It was just mostly scuba diving at first that we were really in love with and, you know, sharing what we were seeing underwater and finding all the cooling little critters and kind of being little underwater detectives. That really was our love. But then probably two years into that, we started wanting to sharing that things with more than just the people we were diving with. We wanted to share it with our parents and our family and our friends and things like that. So we started bringing these original kind of five megapixel Olympus cameras and, and capturing it and then sharing with our family. So that's kind of really where it started. And then how did that grow for you guys? Uh, at first it started, you know, with the friends and the family, and then we started selling our pictures to the people on the boat. So it was basically, we would give people a CD and I don't really do that anymore, but we, uh, we made people CDs of their dives. We had a video camera that we would do videos of their dives. So that's what we did for eight or nine years as we were diving, you know, four times a day, five, six days a week, and then making these videos and photos for people. So we got a lot of practice there. So a lot of trial and error, a lot of finding ways to do things, a lot of ways to tweak our cameras, you know, to put our strobes like this way and that way and to figure out our settings when we're in a cave and settings when we're in the bright water and all these different things. So it's kind of a really way to learn on the fly because you're dealing with your people that you're bringing scuba diving and you have your camera. So about 10 years ago, late 2000s, you and your brother decide to leave the dive instructor world and focus on photography full time. What was that decision like for you? You know, our decision to move on from that was pretty scary because if you have a, a job that you know you're getting a paycheck and it's kind of a guaranteed thing where you're going to go on the workout, you're going to get tips, you're going to get paid. And when you go to become an artist, there's a lot of unknowns. So it's a very scary jump. But we found out pretty quickly that, you know, if you make a jump like that, you have to you have to make it. So it's like a, it's one thing when you're doing something kind of on the side and you it can make it or not make it. But when you're kind of you have the necessity of if I don't make it, I, don't, I can't eat. You know, I can't pay rent. So you have to kind of do it. So then we kind of got in full on with the art world and started doing the banyan trees. We started doing a show at the Four Seasons in Wailea. And that's really when it, how we got our start as artists. Yeah, it's the, the classic life of an artist expression is there for a reason, I guess. Exactly. It is. It definitely is. <laughs> yep. So you were doing art shows, um, basically setting up every every morning for a few days a week. You had kind of a built-in audience with the Banyan Tree and a built-in audience at the Four Seasons. What were some things that you learned early on from your photography style? There had to be instances where certain photos might have been selling more quickly versus others. Are, are there changes that you made in the way you approached the photography side? Yeah, there's definitely been some changes because, you know, at first when you're just kind of a scuba diver and that's kind of what we were, you know, get into it, we're really into the macro things and kind of the more, you know, nerdy, if you will, uh, scuba things like nudibranchs and shrimp and, uh, you know, flatworms and all these kind of things. And those are what kind of really excite you as a scuba diver. And they're kind of really cool looking critters because you're finding all these cool things and you can get them, you know, pictures of cool angles. But if you're not a scuba diver and you, you don't want to tell someone about a nudibranch, which is basically like, like a worm, <laughs> that's not that exciting for people. And at first we actually had huge pictures of nudibranchs. We'd have like a four foot picture of a nudibranch, you know, and trying to sell that to people and people didn't quite get it. So we had to, we did have to kind of cater our pictures, you know, more, they want a turtle on the wall. They want a whale on the wall. They want a dolphin and not necessarily something like that. So as, as you're doing these shows, they're, 
has to be kind of a, a bigger goal in mind. Uh, you know, you make the jump to see, can you survive doing this? When you realize, okay, there's some potential here. What was the next step for you going from art shows at Banyan Tree at different resorts um, to where you wanted to be? Yeah, we always wanted to be something a little bit bigger and something more of like a fine art photographer and not necessarily just, you know, a tourism photographer. So we always wanted to open a gallery and have a website and kind of be more, you know, global, not necessarily just Maui and be bigger than we when we were there. Many people who get introduced to your art maybe do so from being on Maui during a vacation. They might come here for a week. But those folks sometimes are avid scuba divers, sometimes have different experiences in different locations around the world. You've taken your photography pretty global in terms of some of the things you've done and places you've gone to. So tell me kind of about the balance of your photography on photos that are done here in Hawaii, but then also other ones that you've done in different places around the world. Sure. So, the, you know, one of the biggest parts I really like we got into scuba diving in the first place and then the photography in the first place was about the adventure of it and about, you know, discovering new things and finding new things. And um, so traveling has always been, you know, a huge part of it. that's, you know, why we moved to Hawaii in the first place. That was a huge move for us from, you know, all the way in Maine. And now we bring a lot of the scuba divers and, uh, you know, clients that we've met over the years and friends that we've made on on dive trips. And we've been to, you know, many places, the Galapagos, Fiji, Tahiti, you know, Cuba, all, all over the world. And that's, you know, we try to do a trip one or two of those a year. And those are, you know, some of our most fun and where we get some of our, our best shots. What are some of your favorite dive sites here in Maui? In Maui waters, I should say. In Maui waters, you know, my number one is probably Molokai, the hammerhead spot on Molokai. And because it's, it's just kind of an unknown thing, you don't know what you're going to expect. You're, it's kind of a, it's a scary boat ride a little bit. You know, it's the Pailolo Channel. You cross there. It couldn't be really windy and nasty. You kind of have to earn it to get there. And then when you're there, you kind of go out into these deep, strong current waters. And you don't know if the sharks are going to show up or if they're not. And then if they do, it's just really exciting. It's kind of deep. It's a little scary. So I, it's always fun to be on the edge a little bit. As much as I love, you know, turtles and, and all that kind of stuff, which I do, you know, I like ha the adventure of it. And, and if anywhere I can get where it's it feels adventurous and kind of new and, and unknown is, is where I'm going to have the most fun. So your photography not only has been for the gallery, but you've done a lot of work that has been relevant to local research projects here in Hawaiian waters. Can you talk about what you've done with organizations like the Keiki Kohola Project? Yeah, we've been really fortunate uh, to work with the Keiki Kohola Project for, you know, 10 plus years now. Uh, early on, actually, when we were at the Banyan Tree is when uh, Dr. Rachel Cartwright found us and she just kind of wanted, she was trying to take, you know, pictures to help, you know, show about her uh, research and they were having some problems and she would say, hey, you guys have a picture of a whale because we were you know, one time at Molokini Crater, we were just leading a dive group and a whale happened to come in the crater and we got a cool picture. And she's like, how'd you do that? And we kind of, you know, we tried to tell her and then she would keep coming back to the to the tree and ask us questions. They're like, well, what settings did you use? And we'd tell her what settings we use. And then she'd try and then she's like, well, why don't you just put help my camera? And then we'd set up her camera for her and it, and it would maybe work. And then, she, and then finally she's like, well, why don't you just come out with us? And then we came out a couple of days and we got along really well. And then We've been uh, doing the photography for her ever since. And what kind of things will you photograph with her project? Uh, she's a behavioral researcher. So she's, you know, trying to figure out a lot of things about what the whales are doing, you know, uh, compared to the topography on the bottom, uh, compared to boat traffic, compared to each other, you know, the, the mom-calf dynamic. And we kind of go down to document. Like a lot of times when you're on a whale watch or something, you say, hey, that must be the mom and that must be a, a boy. 
but you don't know unless you take a picture. And sometimes you'll go down and they'll think, hey, it's just that, you know, it's just a mumcalf escort. And that's all you've seen the whole time. And then when you go in the water, there's four other whales. So it's, you know, things like that. You do have photos in your gallery that are taken under a research permit that proceeds from those photos go back to support the Kikikihola Project research. Is that correct? Yeah. So all of our our whale pictures taken on Maui are taken with the Kikikihola Project and under her research permit. And all of those pictures that we sell help the proceeds help go back to her research. So that's kind of a cool thing that we've been able to be lucky to do that. And it's a way that we can help a little bit, you know, in, in a way, you know, as much as we can. Which is great. Um, you guys also, you and your brother, um, I produce a Earth Science TV show called Awesome Planet. Uh, you mentioned Jacques Cousteau. His grandson, Philippe, is the host, which is uh, the irony, I guess, for any scuba diver. That's <laughs> sort of the ambition is the, is the Cousteau name. Dan was just with me in January when we uh, filmed in on Oahu with Ocean Ramsey for one of our episodes that will be coming out in October. You've also done underwater work for BBC, for Apple. Your work's going to be featured on another show that's going to be on a large streaming service coming out uh, in the next few months as well. What's it like for you shifting back and forth from photography, which is sort of your your true passion of, of art, to these video components where you and your brother are among the experts at doing this stuff. So you are a go-to for a lot of movie and TV production. What's that like for you when you switch from photography to video underwater? It's awesome, you know, because we do a, a lot of photography and it's always good to change it up a little bit. And it and it's a little, you have kind of have a different thought process when you're going into video something than when you're going to take a still picture. And it's kind of cool to change it up because you kind of get, you know, you get used to things and you get stuck in ruts, you know, just because you're trying to do the same thing and you keep doing the same thing over and over. But then if you switch to something different like video, you'll kind of take it from a different angle. You'll see it from a different perspective and that'll help you with your photography too. So I think doing multiple things, you know, like being a multi-sport athlete is kind of like they help you with your craft. You know, doing something different, just a little bit different can help you with what you're really concentrating on. For people who live here uh, and even folks who come and visit, technology is advancing very quickly. Um, You have a lot of even mobile phones now that are water resistant up to certain depths. What is your top tip for someone who is not trying to uh, mimic a, a photo on your wall, but just you know, maybe they have an encounter where they're snorkeling and a sea turtle comes by or they're scuba diving and they see a white tip reef shark. What's your top tip for people for approaching basic underwater photography? Yeah. So my, I think approaching is a good word there because I would say letting the animal approach you, you know, don't chase things, don't chase after things because you got to think these are wild animals, be calm, be patient and let the animal come to you. If you go chasing after a turtle, you're going to get a turtle butt. If you chase after a whale, you're going to get a whale tail. So you want to be calm, be really mellow and let the animal come to you. And that's when you get, you're going to get your best interactions and get your best shots. Great tip. Let's shift now to what's going on in the last couple months. And I think you represent what a lot of folks here on the island in particular as being such a, a large destination for art. That could be photography, that could be painting, that could be sculptures. In terms of the classic life as an artist, when you're in a destination that relies a lot on tourism dollars, what has the last few months been like for you and your gallery? Well, you know, it's just so much unknown. So it's a little scary. It's a little unknown. You know, you just don't know exactly what you're get, what you're going to get because you don't know when, you know, the economy is going to come back because, you know, 95% of our business, all of these artists, for the most, I would think, is tourism and you don't know exactly when it's coming back. So it's for me, it's been trying to gear towards 
you know, what's something we've wanted to do for better for a long time, any, and that's online and social media and things like that. Because honestly, that's probably the future anyway. Get more eyeballs, get more of an audience. And that's probably the best way to do it these days. What kind of decisions are challenging you guys currently in terms of if you have a closed gallery where it's not deemed essential for the month of April and we'll Mm -hmm. see how things change in May and with no guarantee on anything, as you said, there's no guarantee on anything. Even if, if flights start picking up in June, do people get on them as frequently? What sort of challenges from a business standpoint are you going through both with taking new photos and also getting new eyes on your photos here on Maui? Well, for that, I, I mean, you're, you're weighing a lot of, a lot of things and you're weighing, you know, we have a gallery, so that's a lot of overhead and uh, you're weighing, are you going to be able to make enough sales and justify the overhead of the, you know, of the gallery. So, and you don't know that yet. And there's just really kind of an unknown there. So you don't know what's going to happen. So the best way for us has been to focus on, you know, web sales and internet sales and sales that we don't have to be within six feet of someone for. That's been the biggest challenge. It's something we've always done. We've had a website forever. We've had social, you know, media forever, but we've never really had to make it our focus when I think, and I think that's been a big challenge for us is trying to make that our focus and, and really making that something that works for us. Yeah. And I, I would imagine many other artists are, are in the same shoes as, as that and, and trying to kind of yep. navigate through this. As we've talked to small business owners about growing a business and starting a business, you guys have gone from, you know, selling a couple of days a week at, at a banyan tree to having a full-blown gallery. What are some of the challenges that you encountered along the way that you maybe didn't expect? Well, I mean, I mean, this is probably kind of more of a basic thing, but it's, it's that being an artist is a lot more about being a business person than it is being an artist, at least from what I've seen, you know, because, you know, every dream as an artist is, hey, I'm just going to paint or I'm just going to be a photographer and it's going to sell and I'm just going to sit back and, you know, make money. But you really have to be kind of a business person, I'd say more so than an artist almost. I mean, because it's it's that you end up doing, you know, for us anyway, it's like 75 percent business. And, you know, the other 25 is hopefully taking some pictures. You have to have, you know, profit and loss sheets. You have to pay your taxes. You have to do all these things to stay in business, you know, if you want to stay afloat. So it's, sure. that's always been a hard thing. So shifting to a, the positive business side, what's something that you've been able to either accomplish quicker or an idea that you have executed that 10 years ago never would have thought possible? You know what I really love are these these bucket list adventure trips we do uh, with my brother and, and a lot of people. Uh, there are these just cool trips around the world, you know, to the Galapagos, to Tahiti, to Cuba, to Raja Ampat, Indonesia, and just getting 15 to 20 people across the world and having the coolest trip of our lives. And these kind of super remote places that take, you know, three plane flights, two boat rides, and then a dinghy ride, and then another plane flight to get there and just kind of organizing those uh, John does most of that, by the way, so, so props to my brother. But those are just awesome. And, and the people that we get to do them with and be around are just have been pretty special. So those are that's kind of been one of the biggest ones that I'm proudest of. And, and one of the things that we most have the most fun at. So where, where do you hope to see your business and your art in the next, you know, 12 months, taking out the variable of, you know, the economic condition, which is completely unpredictable for anyone. I don't expect you to to predict that. But in terms of where you'd like to be with your art, where you'd like to be with your business, where you'd like to be with photography, where do you see that? Well, you know, you know, John and I have always wanted to do 
kind of a little TV show kind of thing or a YouTube thing or something like that. And I think, I think this is kind of opening our minds that, you know, let's really do it and put, and really put it down and start taping something. So that's, I think it'll probably start out as a social media or YouTube kind of show, but just something where the two of us are kind of talking about scuba diving, talking about photography, you know, talking about our lives and our adventures. And I think, you know, that's something we've always wanted to do is kind of, you know, share stories in that way and kind of have it be the two of us uh, kind of doing fun stuff and talking about, you know, what we love, our passion. How many photos do you think you've taken? Oh, I mean, we'll go on a two week trip and take 10 to 15,000. And we've been doing this for 15 years. So it's, I mean, I do I have a number? No. Is it in the hundreds of thousands for sure. But I don't, you know, it's hard. I, I wouldn't know for sure the number. And and I think that's something that maybe people, when we get back to the conversation of, you know, hey, what's a good approach to underwater photography or any photography, I think is, I don't know that folks that are not in the industry or that don't um, dabble in, in the industry as a hobby. I don't know if they realize how many photos it takes you to get that one of you know, a turtle cleaning station of a beautiful fish of a shark of a whale. Well, I say the, the big thing is also, I, it's not, so some people think of, Hey, taking a lot of photos, taking a lot of photos, like I'm down there and I have my, my, you know, camera on fast shutter speed and I'm just holding the button down and spraying and praying. It's not like that. It's putting myself, you know, putting ourselves in the right situation, having the lighting right, and then getting a bunch of different angles of that turtle and different different lighting situations of that turtle, and then having the good fortune of a cool fish being near it or something like that, you know, so it's thousands and thousands of photos, yes, but it's mostly the time being down there. It's the time you're putting in to having cool things happen, where then you can have your chances of capturing one of those cool moments to be a cool photo, if that makes sense. So it's, it's kind of time upon time upon time of getting that cool thing. Yeah, you can go, you could go on a good dive and just go down and get a great picture. But most likely you're going to go down many and many, many times, and then you're going to get, you know, the perfect picture. And that's the fun part. I mean, the fun part is going down and trying and then thinking, hey, what can I do better next time? You know, what can, can the conditions be better? Can can I have done something better? But yeah, it takes a lot of time, but that's the fun of it. And uh, yeah, that's what I like to do. What is your favorite image that you've taken here in Hawaii? My favorite picture have always been, uh, my brother took it actually, of a, of a humpback whale with the West Maui Mountains in the background. It's called Maui Keiki, and it's a baby humpback whale kind of in front of the Oluwalu area, a mile or two offshore, looking at the at the West Maui's. And it was a whale that was hanging out with us, you know, the mom and baby. This was with the, the research team for, you know, 40 minutes or so. And they do these breathing cycles where the you know, the mom's like 30 feet below the surface and the baby hangs out underneath the mom and then comes up every, you know, three or four minutes to take a breath and goes back down underneath the mom and kind of rests and then comes back up. And these are, we found these to be the best times for us to get good photos because you'd be really calm in the water. You wait for the mom to get comfortable with you. You kind of make eye contact with her and keep her where she can see you. And then once in a while she gets comfortable and the baby comes up, you know, 20 feet away. And then they get a little more comfortable and then they come up 10 feet away. And at this point in the picture, John got a perfect over under of the whale underneath and the mountains in the background and the way the, the wave arched and the mountains kind of pop out or just kind of work perfectly. And that's, that's probably my favorite. Awesome. And then where can people find this photo and all of your other work uh, online and on social media? Yeah, so we have a website at uh, accessorybrothers.com. We have Instagram and Facebook at Accessory Brothers and also YouTube at Accessory Brothers. 
and yeah, you can follow us and we do cool, uh, cool promos and things like that. And we talk about our pictures and how we took them and things like that. So, so join us and uh, let's chat. Yeah. And underwater photography enthusiasts, you guys have also done um, photography tips, maybe a little bit more for the intermediate uh, folks versus the, the beginner folks on, on lighting and lens selection and things like that. So highly recommend checking out your site, checking out your YouTube. If, if you guys want to learn more and, and certainly um, staying connected. Dan, I, I wish you and your brother all the best uh, with your gallery, and we will be seeing your work on television stations and streaming networks very soon in the meantime. Yeah, thank you so much, Jan. I hope uh, hope to see you soon, and I uh, stay healthy and safe.